Brothers and sisters, I ask that you please turn with me in your Bibles this morning to our text, which comes from the Gospel of Mark. We are going to be bringing chapter 12 to its conclusion, looking at verses 38 to 44 this morning. So Mark chapter 12, verses 38 to 44. Mark chapter 12. Verses 38 to 44. Brothers and sisters, and if you would, please hear with me the inerrant and infallible Word of God. And in His teaching He said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers, they will receive the greater condemnation. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and he said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Thus far is a reading of God's Word. Now today, brothers and sisters, in our text, Jesus' public ministry draws to a close. But before He closes His public ministry, He levels one final criticism against His opponents. If you remember last week, Jesus pointed out the error and inconsistency of the Jewish leader's doctrine. And today what we will see is that He points out the error an inconsistency now of the, Jude, of the Jewish leaders' practices and ways. Yet in criticizing their practices, what he's also doing is using this as an opportunity to teach his apostles. He points out to them how the Jewish leaders carry themselves. And we see this right away in verse 38 as he begins to teach by saying, Beware! Beware. He says, be careful. Be cognizant of their practices so that you be not fooled by it. Now that concern to make them aware of the Jewish leaders' practices and their false worship was something that was very necessary when we think about it. Because if what the Jewish leaders were doing was not a problem for the disciples, Jesus would not have had to warn them in such a way. But Jesus knows the the hearts of all men, doesn't He? He knows our tendencies. He he knows the, the tendencies of the apostles who not too long ago were arguing about who was going to be first in the kingdom of God. So He knows our tendency. He knows our hearts. He knows how easily we give into pride. He knows how much we desire to be well thought of by men. This is what the Jewish leaders wanted. This is what drove them. It was... It was pride. It was arrogance. It was self-ambition. It was self-love. 
And yet to the one who's standing outside of it and looking upon it, they might say to themselves, well, look at how the Jewish leaders carry themselves and make a practice of religion. If we want to be leaders as they are leaders, then perhaps we ought to observe the same methods and manners that they are. If we want to be viewed with respect and honor and dignity, if we want to be seen as someone that you can come to as a spiritual authority, then perhaps we ought to carry ourselves in this very same way. But this can be very dangerous, which is why Jesus warns them at the very outset, beware. We've all walked past fences that had the, the beware, you know, large dog behind the fence. And what do those, what do those beware signs, what are they placed there for? Right? They caution us. They tell us, don't go in there. Stay away. Stay far away. Be cautious. This is the very same thing that Jesus now is, is warning the apostles of. He's saying, beware of their fake and their false devotion. Don't be sucked into it. Because from the outside, it may look like these men are are holy, pious, good men. Men who love God. But in fact, what their practices show is that they are hypocrites. And because they are hypocrites, they are going to suffer severe condemnation as a result. And it's the same caution, it's the same beware that still needs to be proclaimed today. There are lots of young men coming up who desire to go into the ministry. And what you oftentimes find is that young men, they don't, they don't aspire to be like just the normal local, you know, normal guy pastor in the church, right? They aspire to be those, those high profile figures that they see. And a lot of times that's what, that's what drives them into ministry because they see these, these high, highly publicized figures and they say, well look, they have it all. They look like really spiritual, godly men, but at the same time, they have all the possessions that the world desires as well. That's, that's what I want when I go into ministry. To many, those men appear outwardly to be very pious and godly men, men who love God. But oftentimes, when you look closely at the lives of those men, what, the, what their lives are really are, are cautionary tales about what happens when you desire the applause of men rather than the favor of God. So this is why, excuse me, and that is why we find in men like that and in the Jewish leaders today that it is uh, usually, oftentimes, bad theology that drives in hypocritical living. You, you oftentimes find bad theology behind those, those, those publicized figures, right, which leads then to hypocritical living. But this is why those who enter into the ministry and desire to be overseers must beware. Right? They must beware that they themselves will have to stand before God and they're going to have to give an account for every doctrine they taught. They're going to have to give an account for every word they spoke, for every deed that was done. And this is why James says in James chapter 1, verse 3, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. And that's because as a teacher, if, if you do not beware, you are not only hurting or damaging or destroying yourself, but you oftentimes can hurt, damage, and destroy your entire congregation along with you. It's natural for the congregation to take on maybe patterns of behavior or, or practices or ideas that they see their, their pastors having. And so if their pastors 
fall into some sort of sinful practice, the people will see it and they'll say, well, hey, he's doing it. And he's a godly and holy man, so it must be all right for me to do it as well. And what happens? He, he leads them into sin and perhaps further condemnation because God hates false devotion. Right? God despises false worship. And this is what draws out this teaching in Jesus in the temple here today. And yet, what I want us to see is that this is contrasted with another story. This is contrasted with this story of this widow who offers up these, these two tiny, insignificant coins. But in doing so, Jesus draws a stark contrast between the, the true worship of this widow and the false worship and devotion of these Jewish leaders. And it's that contrast then that we want to draw out this morning as well, as we all need to see this difference. We need to be made aware of it. We need to be careful that we do not fall into to false devotion, to false worship practices that seek to worship the creature rather than the Creator. And so this morning we're going to do something a little different. Instead of our natural three points, we're just going to have two points this morning. I know it's a shock to many of you. And so point number one is going to be false worship. Point number one is false worship. Point number two is true worship. Now, under each of those points, I'm going to have three subpoints, which will correspond to one another. Okay? So I'm going to give you the three subpoints for false worship, and they are these. First, uh, false worship is man-centered. False worship is man-centered. Second, false worship takes from God. False worship takes from God. And third, false worship will be judged by God. It will be judged by God. So, those are our our three sub-points. Now, what does Jesus say about the scribes' practices? Well, he says a few things, right? He says, they walk around in long robes and they love greetings at the marketplaces. They love the best seats in the synagogues and at the feast. They love to devour widows' houses and for pretense or under the guise of, of piety, they like to make long prayers before the people. And at the very core of these things, if we were to boil them down and say and categorize them under one, under one heading, what, you know, what describes these things, we might say that they all are man-centered. Right? That, that's our first sub-point. These are all man-centered practices. They all have to do with man and nothing to do with God. Right? The scribes would walk around in, in fancy robes. They would wear robes that were white, that stood out from everybody else. They would wear robes that had fringes on them that distinguished them as special. Right? They didn't want to look like everyone else. They didn't want to go about fitting in with everyone else. They, they didn't want to go unnoticed. They wanted to be seen everywhere they went. They wanted to be greeted by those in the marketplaces. They thirsted over public recognition. And with that public rec- recognition, they thirsted over power and prestige that came with it. And that likewise is reflected then in their desire to have the best seats in the synagogues and at the feasts. They wanted those seats that would loudly display to everyone just how important I am. They wanted people to see that. Many of us have probably been to uh, wedding receptions before. 
And you know what happens at wedding receptions. It's usually the most important people to the bride and groom who sit nearest them. You sit at the table with them or you sit at tables very near to them, right? Those are places of honor. Those are places of importance. And perhaps some of you have gone to weddings where maybe it's, it's like a colleague you went to. You don't know them very well. And so you get the, the, the seats way in the back, right? In the, in the dark corner of the room. You get fed last. And those are quite insignificant seats, right? In, in, in relative to the seats that are, that are nearest the bride and groom. It, it demonstrates your importance to the bride and groom. And so it was the, the scribes who, who would not sit in those seats in the back. They wanted the seats of importance. They wanted the seats of prominence. They wanted to be sitting next to the rabbi in the temple. They wanted to be sitting next to the, the host of the feast. They wanted people to see how important I am and to acknowledge them for it. And a part of that man-centered attitude, then with it comes greed. Right? Greed comes with that man-centered attitude. You see, the scribes did not receive a salary. The scribes did not receive a salary. And so they relied upon the generosity, the hospitality, and the giving of others. And if you know anything about greedy people, which we do, we're all greedy people. If you know anything about greedy people from from seeing it upon the news, what do you know about greedy people? They prey on the weak and the vulnerable. And older widows were just that, weren't they? They were vulnerable. They were weak. As their husbands died, perhaps they were, they were left with a, with a nest egg. Perhaps they, they had some, some wealth. And so what would the scribes do? They would come and they would take and they would take and they would take from these poor, helpless widows. Not caring about the widows. Only looking out for, for themselves. Using their positions of authority to take all that they wanted from these women, to, to steal from them. And then lastly, what we see is they made a show of their religion. They made a show of their spirituality and their piety by making these long prayers before people so that people would see them and they would ooh and they would ah and they would say, oh, look at how pious these men are. Look how spiritual they are. Look how holy they are. The scribes wanted to be the center of attention. But their prayers were not heartfelt. Their, their prayers were not uttered in order that God may be glorified. Their, their prayers were said so that they might be glorified. And so what we see, the practices of the scribes was, was one of arrogance and narcissism. That is what described their practices. So if one thing is clear from Jesus' description, it is that these men made their show of religion all about themselves. The religion was all about themselves. It's what can I get out of it? Right? What, what good can I derive from this? It was man-centered. But this is why Jesus warns the apostles against these practices. Because He knows our propensity to be man-centered even in the worship of God. The number one concern oftentimes for Christians when they, when they look for a place to worship is does it have what I want? When you come to church, you come always looking to, to get something out of it, to, to walk away having gained something for yourselves. This is why some people go to churches that perhaps they like the music, even if they disagree with the preaching. Because it's all about meeting my needs, what I want. When you have a checklist for what you need in a church, it's all about me, 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 me. Some people go to churches because 
They have uplifting sermons and they, they make them feel good about themselves every time they walk out of the door. When we leave here, how often do we ask ourselves, what is it that I have gotten out of church today? What did we get out of worship today? For the worshiper today, worship has become consumeristic. It has become all about me and meeting my needs. But how is that any different than what Jesus here points out about the scribes and their practices? And maybe that describes some of you and how you feel here today. You see, it's oftentimes easy to point the finger and to walk out of here believing that all of our practices are right. But are they? Are they? Or in hearing the man-centeredness of worship today, are you confronted with your own sin? Do you come to worship just to get something out of it? Do you come to worship to be seen by others? Do you pray, dress, act, speak in ways so that people might look at you and pat you in the back and applaud you for it? Because if you do, that is the very definition of false worship. That is the very definition of man-centered worship. Jesus in Matthew chapter 6, verse 1, likewise tells the apostles, beware. He tells them, beware again here. He says, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. And so... Brothers and sisters, we too must beware. We must beware of our propensity to worship God in a man-centered fashion. Not only because that is sin, but also because it, it takes from God. It takes away the glory of God. And this moves us into our second sub-point. Right? Not only were the scribes thieves and that they stole from widows, but the scribes were thieves because they likewise stole from God. They stole from God. Worship is all about God. And when we make worship about ourselves, that is the epitome of false devotion. All false worship robs God of the glory that is due to Him. And don't we see this ungodliness in pulpits across the world today? Ministers who who make the Lord's Day about themselves and detract the glory that is owed to God to themselves by making it about a a comedy special instead of providing a biblical sermon. Or making it a performance so that their people might walk out and might say, wow, how great and how witty and how smart and how cool our pastor is. When the goal of the pastor while in the pulpit is not to be remembered, but rather, brothers and sisters, the goal of the pastor in the pulpit is to be forgotten. The goal of the pastor is to be forgotten so that people walk away not praising the pastor. What a great pastor we have, but rather that people would walk away praising God. What a great God we have. And it's the pastor's duty to lead you into the presence of God. That is our duty. So you walk away saying, I have heard the voice of my God today and praising God for it. Not praising the pastor. Also, worship services have taken the glory off of God and have placed it upon a man or or multiple men when they put people on stage and they have them perform musical ensembles for everyone in the crowd. It detracts from the glory of God and it puts the, the glory on certain individuals in the church. In addition, man robs God of His glory when they intentionally make sermons short 
and doctrinally light so that people can get out of church quickly and that they don't have to think deeply. Right? The glory that belongs to God is stolen when people come to church without the fear of God before their eyes. The, the glory of God is, is stolen when you come to church light-hearted and ill-prepared for worship. Right? You rob God of His glory. And so false worship we see takes, brothers and sisters. False worship takes. But false worship is also so dangerous and we need to be aware of it ultimately because false worship will be judged by God. And this is our, our third and final sub-point under false worship. At the end of verse 40, what does Jesus conclude with? He says that these scribes who are guilty of these false practices will receive greater condemnation. And the reason for that is clear. They have been gifted by God to God's people in order to lead them to Christ, in order to teach them the law, in order to help the widows. But what were they guilty of? Leading people away from Christ, perverting the law, and taking advantage of the vulnerable. And so it shouldn't surprise us when you read through the New Testament that Jesus' harshest language is left to the Jewish leaders, left to the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees. His anger was kindled against them more than anyone else because they were given this great responsibility and all they did was abuse it. But brothers and sisters, they forgot one thing. That although they could fake out man into believing that their worship was true and sincere, what they have forgotten is that they cannot deceive God. Right? They, they cannot make God believe that their worship is, is genuine and sincere. They cannot fool Him. And because they have failed to sanctify God's name with their hearts and in their worship, God will sanctify His name in them in His judgment of them. He will sanctify His own name in their judgment. Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, Sanctify the Lord in your hearts. But for those who refuse to sanctify His name in your hearts, God will sanctify it Himself as He brings the people before their knees and He demonstrates before all the nations that He is Lord as they confess that to be so. And this is what awaits all the scribes and all the Pharisees and, and all those who wish to worship God falsely, making it all about themselves and robbing God of the glory that is due to Him. For God says, I will share my glory with no other. This leads us then, brothers and sisters, into point number two, which is true worship. In true worship, please look with me once more, starting in verse 41. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and he said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they contributed out of their abundance but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Now, as I said, we had three subpoints for false worship. Here I'll give you then the three subpoints for true worship. We said that false worship is man-centered. True worship is God-centered. Okay, true worship is God-centered. Secondly, false worship takes from God. True worship gives to God. And then third, false worship will be judged and true worship will be blessed. Okay. Now these four verses pick up right after Jesus teaches in the temple. 
And he sits down at the court of the women and he sees people offering money in these uh, receptacles that were outside the, the, the court of the women. Remember, in the temple you kind of have four sections. You have the court of the priests, the court of the Israelites, the court of the women, the court of the Gentiles. And we know that Jesus was near the court of the women because the receptacles, the offering boxes were kept there. And so he must have been, after teaching, he must have taken a seat somewhere near them and we're told that he's watching people as they are dropping their offering into these offering boxes. And many of the wealthy, we're told, place large amounts of money inside. And because these were, these were, uh, tr- they were trumpet-shaped um, receptacles that you would drop the money in. And so even if you couldn't see the person dropping the money in, you surely would be able to hear all the money as it's being dropped inside, clanging and banging inside. And then you have this poor widow who comes up and she drops in just these, these two little small coins. And you can just imagine being that widow, can you not, in that line. The person right before you drops in this big load of money and everyone hears the change banging around. And then it's your turn. And you drop in these two tiny, small, insignificant coins and probably next to no noise is heard at all. You can imagine what people were saying about her as she dropped in that money and no sound was made. But they weren't saying the same thing that Jesus was saying, were they? Because Jesus' response to her giving was to call His apostles to Him and to say that what she gave in those two small coins was more than what everyone else had given But we have to ask, what does Jesus mean by that? Because mathematically that can't be true. She, in fact, gave the very least of everyone. In in fact, she really gave almost nothing. Uh, The the money that she gave, those small coins, they were called uh, lepton. And so two of them would, would be two lepta. And these two lepta were equivalent to one sixty-fourth of a denarius. If you remember what a denarius is, that's That's one uh, day's wage for a laborer. She dropped in one-sixty-fourth of one day's wage of the laborer. That was what she gave. And so why does Jesus give this woman, who gives monetarily next to nothing, such praise? Why does He give her such praise? It is because this woman, in giving, thought only about worshiping God and thought nothing about herself. She only thought about worshiping God, not herself. Unlike the false worshipers who gave only their extra, which affected them none, she gave out of her poverty, and out of giving from her poverty, it cost her dearly. But it cost this widow dearly to give. But she didn't care because she wanted to honor and to serve and to obey her God. And by faith and trust, she believed that He would be able to supply all her needs, even if she dropped in those two final coins. That is what, brothers and sisters, true worship is. That is what true worship is. It centers on God. It comes believing in God. It comes trusting in God. It comes obeying God. That is what true worship is. Also, this woman, as she dropped in these two small coins, which she was testifying to, not only to God, but the crowd, was that all that she owned and all that she had did not belong to her, but belonged to God. That is what it symbolizes. She dropped her final two coins that everything she had and everything she owned was His. 
And she did that because she loved God. Why else would someone drop in the two final coins they had to, to purchase their next meal to God? It was done because they, she loved God. And her love for God was put on display in her worship. And Jesus recognizes it. He sees it. He sees that her heart is God's. And today, brothers and sisters, just as He looked on then, He looks on all of us as we are here today. And He sees, do, do they have hearts like this widow? Do we come into worshiping God with hearts that are loving Jesus? Do we come into worship fully trusting in Him? Do we come to worship fully uh, obeying Him? Do we come giving all to Him that is ours? Jesus sees you this day and he, he is looking upon you. He, he knows this. And it is this first subpoint then that shows us the one distinction between false worship and true worship is that false worship centers on man. True worship centers on God. One focuses on themselves while the other cares nothing about themselves. It forgets themselves and places all faith, hope, love, and trust in God. But what we also see and what brings us to subpoint number two is that unlike false worship, which takes and takes from God, true worship gives all to God. As we said, the widow gave all that she had. She brought all that she had, offering up not only her money, but her life in total to God. And I question how many of us come into worship like that. Or how many of us are, are like what we described earlier, who who come looking only for what can I get out of it. Coming looking to, to, to take. That is why you have come to take and to take and to take. You come to be blessed. You come to receive something from the Word. You come to be encouraged by the saints. You come because it makes you feel good about yourselves. But you come not willing to give all of yourself today. Now I know that talking about money is oftentimes a... Uh, Hard for people to do. A lot of times people recoil when you talk about money. But you know why that is? I think that, I think that happens because people think money's off limits. Money's mine. What's in my bank account is mine. But it shouldn't be difficult to talk about money when we realize that the money that you have is a gift from God, which He calls you to be a steward of. And so talking about anything that is God's should not be difficult for you and I. And so perhaps some of you may not enjoy what I'm going to say, uh, but I have to, and you can take that up with God then, because uh, it's not my job to make you guys feel as if you are wonderful people. Rather, it's my job to simply proclaim the Word of God without shame and embarrassment, and that includes discussing God's money. Okay. <clears throat> if you never leave here, brothers and sisters, feeling uh, convicted of sin, then I'm not doing my job, which is to proclaim the Word of God. As the Word of God exposes sin. That's what the Word does. It exposes your sin. It offers reproof and correction to the saints as well. And so one of those failures that we need to be corrected on or reproved for is our failure to regularly give to the offering of the church. Right? What are we told by Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 7? Each one must give as he has decided in his heart not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Right? We come to church wanting. We want God, bless us. Bless us with prosperity. Bless us with greater riches. And yet, we literally want to do that at no cost to ourselves. We don't want to give anything back to God. We take 
and we take and we take, but we refuse to give. And I know that a lot of times people might say, well, it slipped my mind. I forgot. But it's not an excuse. It's not an excuse to forgive. When you come into the worship of God, He commands you to do certain things. And giving is one of those things that we are commanded to do. And so to say that I have forgotten is to say that you have not come prepared for worship that day. And so you are not to forget, brothers and sisters. It is a part of your act of worship. It is a part of your act of service to God to give. To take and to take is simply selfishness and greed. It is the epitome of false worship and false devotion. I mean, I ask you, how do you think God's church is going to thrive and survive? How do you think bills get paid? How do you think we get a building that we can stay in? How do you you think we can provide things that we can provide for? How do you think we, we help to, to supply food for widows in our community? How do you think we help to pay for Bibles that, that go out to all nations? How do you think we support missionaries around the world? If not, with the money that you provide us. And so it's your duty, brothers and sisters, to do that. But your giving, I want you to know, does not stop there. Like the widow, God wants us to give all of ourselves to Him, not just our money. That is what pleases God. That type of giving. And yet I want us to see that it is not the widow that we ought to pattern our giving after, but rather it is Christ that we are to pattern our giving after. For it is Christ who has come, and He has not given partially of Himself, has He? No, Christ has given all of Himself, both body and soul, for yours and mine sin, and He ought to be the pattern of our own giving. And so God not only looks at what money you bring today, but He looks at everything that you have brought today. Did you bring your loud and joyous singing voices with you this morning? Did you bring your listening ears as the minister is proclaiming God's Word to you this day? Did you bring a heart aflamed for Christ this morning? Did you bring attentive minds to pray together corporately this morning? Did you come to give to God's people? your time and your energy and your love by interacting with them, showing them your care and concern for them? Have you come giving all, both body and soul, to God in worship this day? This is what we are to give. This is what God commands of His people. And when we offer true worship, we can know that it will be blessed by God. And this leads us to our third and our final sub-point this morning. What I want us to see is that Jesus in this story is making a, com- a comparison of quality. It's a comparison of quality. He's saying that there wasn't much quality to the giving of the wealthy. Right? They gave out of their abundance. It was just a, a demonstration of their wealth. It affected them in no way. It would have been no different had they dropped a, just a sack of rocks inside the receptacle. Because it was offered apart from faith in Christ. But the two coins that the widow dropped in the offering, which to everyone else was nothing, was to Christ of greatest quality, even though of smallest value. Right? Those two coins, as they went in that box that day, were to Christ the most precious and rarest of all jewels to be found on the earth. That is how Christ viewed them. It wasn't about the, the amount of the offering. It was about the, the quality of the offering she was giving. As she gave out of faith, she gave out of love, as she gave out of humility and without any hypocrisy. She simply wanted to worship her king. 
And in doing what God commands, He promises to bless us. We read this in Isaiah chapter 58, verses 13 and 14. If you turn back your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight, and the holy day of the Lord honorable, if you honor it not going your own ways, or seeking your own pleasure, or talking idly, then you shall take delight in the Lord. And I will make you ride on the heights of the earth. I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Right? If we worship God truly and as He desires, He promises to grant to us the enjoyment of the privileges we have in Christ as members of that new covenant. He promises to help us to die to sin, to grow in holiness and obedience and faith. But we must be worshipers who worship God in spirit and in truth. This is what Jesus tells the woman at the well in John chapter 4. He says, My Father is seeking true worshipers who worship in spirit and in truth. But to be a true worshiper means first being a true convert. It means that God has set His electing love upon you and has raised you from death to life. That before the foundation of the world, He has adopted you to be His son and daughter and He your Father. And if you are His being brought near to Him by the blood of Christ, then brothers and sisters, as we draw to a close this morning, I say beware. Beware about falling into false worship practices and false devotion. And then also, I tell you, if you are a saint here today, to be careful. Be careful to adorn the Gospel, demonstrating your faith and your love to Him by your lives. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for Your Word this morning. We thank You for it. We thank You for these life-giving words. We thank You that You have given them to us to be our rule of faith and practice. And we ask, Lord, that by the aid of the Spirit, He would cause us to will and to work after the good pleasure of God to the praise and glory of Your name. And we ask this all in Christ's name we pray. Amen.